Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. The title of the sermon is How Not to Pray. And so Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And if you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do once you uh, arrive at the text. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is what the Lord Jesus says. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. This is the Word of God. Let's go to our our God in prayer. Lord, we just come before you this morning. We ask you to be with us as we look at your Word, as we dive into your Word. We pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to receive what is in your Word, that you would remove me as much as possible. Lord, that you would teach us how to properly pray and how not to pray. And that, Lord, you would edify your saints by correcting us and convicting us where we need it and encouraging us where we need it. And we pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, you'll save them through the hearing of your word and the preaching of the gospel this morning. We pray, God, that in all of this, you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, I think it's, it's obvious that this morning our text is about prayer, and I assume that every believer considers this an important subject. We know we're supposed to pray, yet I'm pretty sure we all think we could get better at praying. Some of us wonder if we are even praying right, meaning we want to know how to pray, and we want to know what kind of things we're supposed to pray about. Is there a special set of words that make our prayers more effective? Should you pray at a particular time? And when it comes to those questions, every religion offers different and contradictory answers to these questions. And they can't all be right. In fact, I'm just going to tell you they're wrong because they're all guessing. Why are they guessing? Because God hasn't spoke to them. But God has spoken to us in the Bible. This is God's word. So he has told us what we need to know. And in the Bible, he tells us how to pray in the right way. He gives us the required knowledge about him so we could pray correctly. And he also gives us the right reasons to pray. And so our text this morning is all about this. In fact, it's very straightforward. Here's the point if if you like taking notes on, on the text. It's this. Faithful prayer requires right knowledge of God and the right reasons for praying. Faithful prayer requires the right knowledge of God and the right reasons for praying. Now, why? Well, Jesus will show us why by giving us two examples of what not to do. He'll give two bad examples that will then show us the right, what right looks like. Okay, so what are the two examples? The first bad example is the hypocritical prayers of believers. The hypocritical prayers of believers. And then the second example is the ignorant prayers of unbelievers. So whether we're talking about hypocritical prayers of believers or ignorant prayers of unbelievers, these are bad examples that help us understand what right looks like. Jesus often teaches this way, where he first tells you what something is by telling you what it's not. He'll show us what the wrong looks like. And then by the end, we should clearly see that faithful prayer requires the right knowledge of God and the right motives or reasons for praying. Now, we are continuing where we left off last time, and so for those of you who are visiting with us, welcome, and I'd like to just tell you a little bit of what what we do and why we do it. Uh, We practice what's called expositional preaching. That means we don't hop all over the Bible and give topical self-help lessons. Instead, we go through whole books of the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The point of the sermon better be the point of the text, otherwise we're doing this wrong. It's God's word that has the power to transform us from one degree of glory to another, not the cleverness of any preacher. It's God's word, right? So that being said, I've been going through the gospel of Matthew for a while now, and this just happens to be the passage that we're on this morning. 
But I think it would be helpful if I give us a really, really fast summary of where we're at in Matthew. To understand a little more about the Gospel of Matthew, it has five big sections, and each section does two things. Each section shows you what Jesus taught and shows you what Jesus did. Matthew keeps it really simple. Well, we're still in the first big section of Matthew, and we're in the part that shows what Jesus was teaching. Specifically, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous sermon or message or teaching that has ever been preached in all of history. And what Jesus is doing in this teaching is he's showing us how to be people who flourish. And what that means is to be people who please God. He's mainly teaching his disciples, but he's also saying this for the crowd that is within earshot of what he's saying. So really what Jesus is saying is for all people to listen to. So going back to the question then, how can we be people who flourish, right? It's real simple. If we live for God right now, like right now you're living for God, and for the rest of your life you're living for God, then you will be a person that flourishes by God's definition. You see, eternal life is coming. So we have this temporary life right now that we live for God. It's a difficult life, though, because we live in a difficult world where there is sin and death, and these things make it hard. But regardless of those things, the flourishing person lives for God. We preserve what is good, and we shine God's light in this dark world by doing the good things that God commands us to do. And we stay away from the bad things that God prohibits. And, and by reading God's law correctly and applying it all the way down into our hearts, we live in a way that pleases God. That's what Jesus has been showing us. Now, all of that presupposes that you already have a relationship with God, okay? It assumes we've already been saved. We can't do this stuff the Sermon on the Mount is talking about if we're not already saved, okay? So this assumes we've been saved. And if you've been saved, then you have God's word, got the Bible, and you try to live according to it. Now, part of our relationship with God involves personal acts of righteousness or personal acts of piety, as it is sometimes called. These are things like giving alms to the poor and fasting and praying. These are good things, but with them comes a certain kind of temptation. We might be tempted to do these good things for a bad reason, we might be tempted to do them in order to be seen by people. Like eyes are watching and we want them to see us. We might be trying to get people to think highly of us as we do these things. And so we put on a display of righteousness. God does not approve of that at all. In fact, chapter 6, verse 1 sets up this entire section. It applies to giving to the poor, to praying, and to fasting. Let me read it really quickly, and you can look back up. It's just a couple verses. Verse 1, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Now, that includes prayer, right? It includes prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. So, talking about prayer, if you pray to be seen by people, then you have no reward. Jesus will make that clear as we go through our text. It is a wrong reason to do a good thing. So with that, I think we can now take a closer look at our text this morning. Specifically in verses 5 and 6, Jesus is going to show us the first bad example. He shows us the prayers of hypocritical believers. And in so doing, he's going to show us why the wrong reasons and faulty knowledge of God renders prayer as meaningless. So let's take a look. There's a lot for us to learn here. Look at verse 5 first. Jesus says this, he says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Now, if you notice, this is exactly like what we saw last week in verses one through four. It has the same four parts. First, it has the act of piety, in this case, praying. Then it has the wrong way to do it. Then it has the wrong motive for doing it, and then it talks about a reward, or in this case, you don't get one, at least not from God. So let's break this down. The first part begins with the act of piety or prayer. Jesus says, whenever you pray, let me stop there for a second. Praying is this act of piety or personal righteousness. And I want you to notice something, and I'm sure you've, you've noticed it, but I'm going to point it out anyway. He does not say, if you pray. He says what? 
When you pray or whenever you pray. This is just like what he said in verse 2 about giving to the poor. He assumes you're already doing it. He assumes it is a regular part of your life. And I think it's very important for us to reflect on this. How many of us pray regularly? Many Christians in the United States live very busy lives and they don't schedule time aside specifically for prayer. They get up, they get ready for the day, then they do all that they have to do. Then they go home and between family obligations and hobbies and all the other things, by the time they go to bed, they're pretty wiped out. Then when they get together with unbelievers, they're like, man, pray for me because I'm just not praying enough. Please uh, have God give me more time to pray. Let me tell you something. You have to make the time. An extra 30 minutes is not going to magically appear. And if it did, you would probably allocate it to your hobbies and the other things you do. Because the time you already have now, you're given to that. Right? So if you get more time, it doesn't mean it's automatically going to go to prayer. You're just going to invest it in what you're already investing your time in. Look, the only way that prayer will become regular is if you set a time apart every day that's dedicated to prayer. Even if it's only 15 minutes, at least it's 15 minutes of dedicated prayer. And then if you're going throughout the rest of the day praying for things as they come up, that's great. But without a dedicated time of prayer, chances are you're living a life of if you pray rather than when you pray. And that's not good. Because prayer is the lifeblood of everything we do in the Lord. It's no accident that the longest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. That is a book of prayers that is written to music. It's no accident that when Jesus had big decisions to make, even though he's the son of God, he prayed all night. It's no accident that it was during intense prayer when Jesus was attacked strongest by Satan during the 40 days in the wilderness before he started his mission and then again in Gethsemane before he was about to do the hardest part of his mission. But that's when you see him praying the most fervently. It's also no accident that churches that are on the verge of closing their doors because they've been declining for years, and I've been studying this for the last six months, Every single one of them, without exception, has the same two problems. Their people don't get together to pray together, and they don't evangelize the lost. But prayer is a a big, big piece of that. So I say all of this so that we would see just how important it is that we all pray regularly. Jesus' expectation is that we pray every day. That's why he begins by saying, when you pray. Going about all your daily tasks without prayer shows that deep down you think you could do it on your own power. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Those who understand that ultimately we can't do anything apart from the Lord, they're the people that pray a lot. And so may we all be those who pray a lot, okay? So the first part of this, when you pray, let's make sure we're doing it. The second part of what Jesus says is he focuses on the wrong way of praying. So assuming that we're praying, he's going to tell us how not to pray. He says this, he says, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Okay, so let's look a little closer at this. First, he commands us not to be like the hypocrites. And that's why I said the first example Jesus gives is the hypocritical prayers of believers. Now, you might be wondering why I'm saying this is of believers. Well, we have to remember the context here. Jesus is talking to his Jewish audience. This is before the cross. This is before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So at this time, God's covenant was only with Israel. All Jews were part of God's covenant community. They were in relationship with God as he redeemed the nation out of Egypt, brought them into their land, and provided for them in the land. They were given God's word. They even had God's prayer book, the book of Psalms. So these were people in a relationship with God, and they knew how to pray. They knew when to pray. They knew all the different things you could pray about. That was their advantage for being the people of God. They had 1,400 years of instruction from God on this. And yet Jesus is telling us a lot of them were hypocrites. Obviously not all of them, but a lot of them were hypocrites. Now, this word hypocrite, we first saw this last week, and I mentioned that the word hypocrite was originally a word that referred to actors in a theater. See, they play their roles very well. They act. They they act in such a way that they're trying to convince the audience that they are the character that they're playing. And that's fine in theater, but in real life, that is not fine. 
okay? And, and so there's a lot of ways, or a couple ways at least, we could be hypocrites. Now, the most obvious way you could be a hypocrite is the one that everybody thinks about. That's when you tell people to live righteously, but you're living wickedly, okay? You're, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. That's the most obvious kind of hypocrisy. You're pretending to be something you're not in that case. But there is a more subtle way to be a hypocrite. You could be a hypocrite even when you're doing the right things. Not when you're saying the right things, but doing the bad things. You could be a hypocrite when you're saying the right things and doing the right things. And that sounds kind of strange, but look, here's the thing. If you do the righteous acts, but you do them for the wrong reason, you're a hypocrite. And let me explain this. We are supposed to pray to God in order to show our dependence on him. We're supposed to pray to God in order to grow closer to him because prayer will do that. The more time you spend talking to someone, the closer you get with them. That's how it works for us in life. That's also how it works with our relationship with God. But if instead of that, if you pray really good prayers in order to be seen by people, then are you really praying in order to grow closer to God? Or are you praying for a different reason? Are you really trying to show God that you understand your dependence on him? No. You want people to think that's what you're doing, but what you're really doing is you're praying to put on a show so that people will think you're holy, so that they'll be impressed. You are wearing an actor's mask if you do that. Any of us, if we do that. We're pretending in that case. It's where you want people to think you're deeply spiritual as you're loudly reaching out to God, but in reality, you're doing it for their accolades. That is hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy, and it is the second kind of hypocrisy that Jesus has in mind here. Since these people are part of God's covenant community, they know who God is. They have the right doctrine. They know what prayer is and why we're supposed to pray, and therefore they know the right thing to do. And yet even with that, many of them are doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And this is the kind of subtle hypocrisy that is easiest for us for believers to fall into. And nobody else could tell because it's something that's happening at the heart level, right? That is what makes this so dangerous and nefarious. Now, Jesus gets really specific for why these folks are hypocrites. He says they're hypocrites, quote, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, end quote. Now, it is very important for us to Notice what the Lord emphasizes here. Otherwise, you run the risk of getting legalistic by focusing on the wrong thing. And people do get legalistic with, these, with this passage. Jesus is not focusing on the synagogues or the street corners. He's not focusing on the fact that they're standing. And I'll come back to all this. He's focusing on the words they love to pray. Okay, those are the words he's focusing on. They're hypocrites because they love to pray. And see, the issue then isn't the location. The problem is they love to pray in those locations. That's the problem. It's that they love to pray in these locations. Why these locations? Because that is where everyone could see them praying. That is the problem. Okay? And it's important to make this distinction because praying in a synagogue makes sense. God's people gathered to sing together, to pray to him, to hear his word explained. That's an appropriate place to pray. Just like here, David came up, led us in prayer. He was doing right, and we were doing right to pray with him. Okay, so that's just like praying in church. It was appropriate. And back then, praying on a street corner is appropriate as well. Why? Because in ancient Judaism, there's actually three set hours of prayer. The morning prayer, afternoon prayer, and evening prayer. They coincide with the morning, afternoon, and evening sacrifices, okay? And the thing is, when those prayer times came, you stop what you're doing wherever you're at and you pray. And look, just to point this out, the New Testament shows us that even after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, Jewish believers in Jesus still kept these three times of prayer. I'll just quickly demonstrate that with Acts chapter 3 verse 1. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. So they were still keeping the afternoon prayer. Now, as I said, it didn't matter where you were at. When the appointed hour of prayer arrived, you had to stop what you were doing and pray right where you were at. Well, there's a good chance you'd be out and about sometimes, hence on a street corner. And it's worth noting that the word that Jesus uses for street is not just the word for any street. Plataea, that's the Greek word, it refers to the busy streets. It's the Bear Valley Roads, okay? It's the busy streets, okay? And so the corner of a busy street 
is a busy intersection. There's going to be a lot of people there. Now, where we live, let me just say, if we go that way to the corner of Juniper and 9th Street holding a sign, very few people are going to see you. But if you go to Bear Valley Road and Hesperia Road and you're holding a sign, a lot of people are going to see you. And that's why Joseph goes out there with Sovereign Way signs, because that's a good location to be for that. So same, same kind of thing. Jesus has that kind of street corner in mind. Now, if that happened to be where you were at, the street corner, then at the appointed times you're supposed to pray. Just like if you're in the synagogue on Shabbat, it's appropriate to pray. Apparently, though, these people loved to pray, on these, pray at these busy intersections. And so that tells you that they timed their daily activities in such a way that they would always just happen to be at those intersections when the times of prayer came. Okay? That way they would have a bigger audience. You see, the problem isn't the street corner. The problem is the loving to pray on the street corner. That is what makes it wrong. Same thing in the synagogue. Praying there is what you do. But saying some fancy prayer out loud so that everybody's going to be like, oh, oh, how spiritual that person is. That is wrong. That's it. So it's not the place, but the motive that makes it wrong. And Jesus moves quickly to the wrong motive here. He's already told us the, the wrong manner, loving to pray in the public places. Now he's going to tell us the motive. He says they do this, quote, to be seen by people. That's why they're doing it. It is this motive that ruins the whole thing. It's this motive that makes them hypocrites. It's this motive that makes it clear that it has nothing to do with God and everything to do with grandstanding. And this being seen by people, Jesus says, that's the only reward they're going to get. Verse 5 closes with him saying, truly I tell you, they have their reward. See, a sincere prayer does have a great reward because God hears the prayer. He answers the prayer. He gives what's best for you in accordance with his will. But when you pray as a hypocrite, when you pray to put on a show for people, then the only reward you get is they saw you pray. That's it. That's all you get. Yeah, they might think you're a righteous person. They might be impressed with you for a little while. But at the end of the day, that is a lame reward. It really is. Okay? Ten years later, they're not going to be thinking, remember when uh, this guy was praying in that corner? That was amazing. No. It's just a lame trade. I'd much rather have God answer my prayer and grow me in my Christian walk. That's a reward. Okay? But you're not going to get that reward if you're praying as a hypocrite. So, verse 5 shows us how not to pray. It shows us how uh, religious hypocrites pray. And I'm going to come back to this whole believing believers praying hypocritically in a moment. But first, there's a couple issues in this verse I need to, to talk about because a lot of preachers just say some wrong things when they're, when they're preaching through this text. Sometimes people try to make a big deal out of them for standing. You know, you know why they're hypocrites? Because they're standing. It's like, oh, because he says they're standing in the corner. And, and so at this time, you had this Jewish prayer book that was being developed uh, called the Amida, which just means standing. It's a standing prayer. It was 18 sets of prayer that were said throughout the day, and the posture was standing. So the argument goes that when the three times of prayer would come, every Jew had to stand and recite these 18 prayers. And so some people are saying that's what Jesus is criticizing. He's against that practice. He's against those 18 prayers, and he's against them standing. And by them standing, they're trying to be the center of attention. Look, let me just tell you that all sounds nice, but not any of, none of it's true. Okay, the standing has nothing to do with Jesus' rebuke here, and I'll prove it in a minute. And the 18 prayers of the Amida, if you ever read them, they're actually pretty good. If you were to pray those kind of things and believe what you're praying, you're not doing anything wrong. So that's not the issue. And just to make it clear, standing's not the issue. Look what Jesus says in Mark 11:25. Look what he assumes about you when you're praying. He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. He assumes you'll be standing. In his famous parable of the, the self-righteous Pharisee and the repentant tax collector, he makes it clear both were standing as they were praying. In the Old Testament, Hannah prayed while standing. A lot of other people did as well. And I just want to let you know, there's actually a lot of accepted postures of prayer. Moses, Joshua, and Daniel all prayed prostrate on their faces as if they're laying on their face before the Lord. Solomon, Daniel, Jesus, and Paul all prayed at times kneeling. King David prayed sitting. 
So honestly, I think it would be a great thing if we get it in our heads that you could pray, you know, while you're standing, sitting, walking, whatever. God doesn't care about the posture. The Bible shows them all favorably. The idea that there's a a right posture and all other postures are just to gain attention, that is a really dumb idea that has nothing to do with the Bible. So if you think that, well, actually sitting in a pew and bowing our heads and closing our eyes and being silent, that is the most holy way. You are making that up. The Bible doesn't say that. There's a lot of different ways we are allowed to pray. So Jesus isn't focusing on the posture here. He's also, as I've said, not criticizing the place. Synagogue and street corner are valid places. Jesus isn't even prohibiting public prayers because some people think that's where he's going. The issue is not that people can see you. Jesus prayed in public when he performed miracles like multiplying the loaves or raising Lazarus from the dead. In the book of Acts, we see the apostles demonstrate public prayer quite a few times. The issue is only the motive. They love praying in these places because they love being seen by people. That is the wrong way to pray. One of the early church fathers, Theophilact, uh, wrote this in a way that had a very poetic ring in Greek. I'll I'll say it in English first because it's true. I don't think anybody could disagree with this. He says, what matters is not the place, but the manner and the aim, right? What matters is not the place, but the manner and the aim. Now, in Greek, it goes like this. What matters is not the tapas, but the tropos and the skapos. So he was rapping. He was, a, he was a Greek Christian hip-hop artist in the first couple centuries. You know, what matters is not the tapos, which is the place, but the tropos and the skapos, which is the manner and the motive. So he's spot on. And I think that's clear that's what Jesus is getting at. So if, that, if that's what the wrong way looks like, meaning the motive, then what does the right way look like? Well, in verse 6, Jesus says something very similar to what he said about giving to the poor. Look at verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now notice it has the same four parts, the act of piety, when you pray, now the right manner, go to a private place, the right motive, pray for your father's ears alone, and then the right reward, your father will reward you. Jesus is telling you that if this is a struggle in your heart, then you need to get radical to get rid of your hypocrisy. So if you pray in front of people because you want them to hear you, then Jesus is telling you, stop praying in front of people, period. And hear me carefully, if you have that temptation and you like praying to be heard, then Jesus' command for you is you're not allowed to pray in front of people anymore, not till you get over this. He's going to tell you what you should be doing, because right now, your heart is wrong. So what he's saying is you need to, for now, only pray in a place where no one can hear you. He tells you to go into a private room, shut the door, that way no one can even see that you're in a praying posture, and then pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, the interesting thing is the only private room that most homes had was a tiny little storeroom. It was, it was like a, a small little janitor's closet. So it was small, it was cramped, it was crowded, it was an uncomfortable place. And Jesus is saying that if that is what you need to do to get over this particular sin of grandstanding, then go in a place even like that and pray to your father who's in secret, okay? That is how you will get over this, this sin, Now, of course, I do want to say a locked room doesn't guarantee your sincerity, but it definitely stops your hypocrisy because nobody could see you in there. Now, if you bring your iPhone in there and you're doing a selfie, um, you missed the point, okay? So go in there without your devices, and then, yes, that will help us get past our hypocrisy. Now, some people want to take this further than what Jesus intended. They claim that all prayers must be secret. They say that any public prayer is wrong because Jesus said you better go into a room. But as I already pointed out, Jesus prayed in public, as did the apostles. It depends on the situation. It depends on the reason. For example, when the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, raised that little boy back from the dead, he entered the room and prayed in private. Okay, so it says in 2 Kings 4.33, so he went in, closed the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. It was private. But when the prophet Daniel heard that a law was passed in Persia that forbid people from praying to God, Daniel prayed in a private place but with his window open so that everybody could see him defy this unjust law. 
And so this is what Daniel 6.10 says. It says, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in the upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day, he kept the three hours of prayer, three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, he did that to be seen. Because he wanted to make it clear that no human king has the right to forbid prayer to the one true God. So in that case, his prayer needed to be public. Elisha's prayer had no need to be public, so he went in and closed the door. Again, the situation will be determinative of this. When we gather for public worship, we're going to pray publicly. That's what we do. This is an appropriate place for that. Okay, And so, as, as I said... Jesus prayed in public often as the occasion required, but he prayed more in private. When we look at all the times it tells us Jesus prayed, he prayed more in private. So maybe I could put it this way as a principle for us. If you pray more in public than you do in private, then you have a problem. If you pray in public more than you do in private, you have a problem. You're likely the hypocrite that Jesus is calling out here. But if you pray far more in private, then it means you really are praying for God's ears alone. You just like praying, and that's a good thing, right? You understand how important it is. You live in a way that's dependent on God, and amen. And as such, okay, as such, you pray in private a lot. It makes sense when you get together with others in public, you're going to pray as well. And it's not a problem for you because God really is your intended audience. You're just a prayer warrior. And again, that's a good thing. But if you're the type that craves attention from people, then yes, you should not pray in public until you repent of that. Keep your prayers private until the right reason for praying has permeated your heart. Otherwise, Jesus is saying your prayers are useless and God will not honor your prayers. You might be able to fool people watching, but you can't fool God. And there's one more thing I want to say about the private room before I move on. This is not commanding you to have a prayer closet. A few years ago, there was a nice trend because of a movie. And I'm usually suspicious of all trendy things in evangelicalism, like a prayer closet. But a prayer closet's not a bad idea. Okay? It's not a bad idea. Having a designated place for prayer is a good idea. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be a closet. Well, Jesus said a small little room, but he didn't say a closet, right? It doesn't have to be a closet. It could be your backyard. It could be in your car. It could be in your kitchen. Jesus, his point is have a place to pray, okay? But it doesn't have to be a closet. And ultimately, his point isn't even that. His point is don't be a hypocrite. Finding a secret place to pray is how you overcome your hypocrisy. So his point is make sure that you're praying for the right reason. If you do, he says this. He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you with a lot of things. He may answer your prayer with favor. He might say no to you. But if he says no, it's because it's better that he says no. God knows what he's doing. Regardless, God will reward your heart. He'll reward your right heart by drawing it closer to him. That's what happens when we pray with him uh, regularly. He draws our hearts closer to him. And when he does that, you become more and more like Jesus. That's why the spiritual discipline of praying is so important. It really is lifeblood for us. Okay, And those are great rewards to be more like Jesus, to be closer to God. And then on top of that, I'll throw a fancy word at you, there's going to be eschatological rewards. Eschatology just means the end times, right? So that means when Jesus returns and we get eternal life, there's going to be many rewards that go with it. And some of the rewards he's going to give you just because you prayed. He's going to like, you know what, here's these extra ones. Why? Well, you prayed with the right motive. It's like you're not even expecting that, but that's what he's going to do. And you know what that shows us? God is such a giver. He loves to give what is good to his children. When we pray to him with childlike dependence, he loves it. When we pray to him as obedient servants that want to do his will, he loves it. And God rewards what he loves. And think about this. Isn't it amazing? We need God for so many things. So it makes sense that we would pray, right? If you need a lot of things and God's the one who's in control of everything, it makes sense that we would pray to him. Having the right to pray to God is a great privilege. Think about it this way. Can you just walk up to the president of the United States anytime you want and ask him for favors? No, Secret Service is going to beat you down, right? And let's just be real. The president's not going to be able to give you most of what you want anyway, okay, or what you need. 
But God is not this, this weak president, any weak president, not saying anything in particular. God is the king of the universe, omnipotent, all-powerful. And any time you could go to him and make your petitions, you would think that privilege itself is the reward? But no, Jesus is saying, if you go and pray to the almighty king anytime you want, which is amazing itself, he's also going to give rewards beyond what you're asking simply because he likes it when you pray. Man, when I think about that, what a God. That should motivate us to pray to him even more. He's so good to us. So at this point, Jesus has shown us the wrong motive for prayer and the right motive By focusing on the prayer patterns of the Jewish people, he's showing us the problems with prayer that come from people like us who have the right knowledge. And so, loved ones, today, that's us. That that are the followers of Jesus. That's the people who are in this position. We have the right knowledge of God. We have the Bible. We've accepted Jesus as our King and Savior. We have the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, dwelling in us. We gather in public worship just like they did back then. We pray in public places like restaurants. Some of us will show up to national days of prayer or prayer breakfasts. And and remember what I said. The point of the text is faithful prayer requires the right knowledge of God and the right reason for praying. Well, the Jews from Jesus' day, a lot of them, what it demonstrates is they it's possible to have the right knowledge and pray the right words, but to have the wrong motive, and therefore our prayers would still be wrong. So we, and this is the exhortation, we in particular need to pay attention to this because this is likely where we will fail too. I know believers that like to be seen when they're doing spiritual things. I know believers in this church that struggle with this. Some haven't admitted it yet. But look, the fact is this. If during a prayer meeting you're praying for a long time and and, and other people can't, you're doing what the Pharisees did. If you tell me that people come up to you and say that, oh, your words were were so good or whatever, then it's hard not to think you're doing it to be seen, okay? We bless people with our prayers, yes, but how do we bless them with our prayers? By God answering those prayers. But if we're doing it to be seen, God's not going to answer those prayers, so our prayers don't bless them. Even if they felt blessed by hearing it, if we were doing it to grandstand, we're robbing them of the very thing we're praying for them. So the motive has to be right. Now, I need everybody to listen closely because I don't want to be misunderstood. It's so easy to veer off into legalism here, okay? We want to pray biblically using our right knowledge and our right knowledge of God. We want to pray for the right things in the right way. If that happens to be during public prayer, then yes, we want our prayers to be heard, but for the right reason. We want the prayers to be heard as a model for the newer believer so that they can then understand how to pray better, right, in a more uh, uh, God-glorifying way. If we're at a national day of prayer, I can promise you the majority of the prayers are nonsense. It's false doctrine, false teaching, false things about God just being spewed. And so when you get your chance, yes, you want to pray the right things about God so people could see what right looks like, which will be a subtle rebuke of the wrong things they, they were praying. Okay, that's all good. And it's good to do it in public, and it's good to do it so it can be heard in public. But be careful. It's extremely easy for that to tempt us into praying so that they hear us show them what right looks like. Notice what I said. It's subtle. It's not wrong to pray so that they can see what right looks like. But when you add the word us, it changes everything. It is wrong to pray so that they could hear us show them what right looks like. Meaning it's not about them seeing what right looks like. It's about them knowing that we're the ones that showed them that we're the ones that demonstrated this. In that case, the focus is not on God, but it's on us. It's on our ability to pray in a better way. We want them to know it. And think about this. The words of the prayer could be identical, whether done with the right motive or the wrong motive. It could be the exact same words, but the motive is everything. The same words bring a reward from God if our focus isn't on how we sound in front of people. But if the focus is on how we sound in front of people, then those same exact words bring no reward from God. That's why we got to think very carefully about this. It all comes down to motive. And I say this because as believers, we are the people that Jesus is talking to in verses 5 and 6. We're the ones that he's correcting today. 
His words correct those in covenant with God who have the right knowledge but are tempted to use that knowledge to be seen by men. That makes them hypocrites. Every bit of knowledge that you have about God is meant to make you serve him better, to put you in greater awe of him, to cause you to give your life more fully to his mission. But some people take this most beautiful of gifts, which is knowledge of the most high, and they use it to puff themselves up. Loved ones, as I say this, I say this as someone who sometimes is tempted by this. And so I know I'm not the only one. So when we look at a passage like this, if we only think it's talking about how certain Jews prayed 2,000 years ago, you're missing the point. This is about us, and we need to take it seriously, and we need to be very careful with it. Jesus shows us, again, that faithful prayer requires the right knowledge of God and the right reason for praying. And he shows us why, as I said, by giving us these two examples that show us the wrong, uh, the wrong knowledge and wrong motive, or both. So we've seen the hypocritical believers. We've seen that that can be us. We need to be on guard. And one more thing I just want to say on that. We pray from knowledge, but there's an important piece of knowledge that we make ourselves forget when we pray hypocritically. And it's the knowledge that God is holy and God will not be mocked. And so we push that out of our head so we could grandstand. But I'm telling you this, if you just repeat again and again in your head, no, I got to remind myself, God is holy. That is one way to fight this. Remembering that he's holy, and when you pray, you don't want to mock him. That will help a lot. Well, that covers the first bad example. This would be a good time to move on to the second example Jesus gives. Okay, So after he tells us not to pray like hypocritical believers, he's now going to tell us not to pray like ignorant unbelievers. You see, they don't know God, so their lack of knowledge will make them pray in a wrong way. And because they don't know God, their motive for prayer will be wrong as well. So they got a double whammy. And because of this, unbelievers develop patterns and habits of prayer that are just wrong. Now, you might be thinking, well, then how's that relevant for me? Because I'm a believer. Well, it is relevant. You might be like, why? Because a lot of times, believers copy the praying of unbelievers. And when we're not in the word... We don't know as much about God as we should. We might actually pray like them without even realizing this. And so Jesus is going to shut down that idea as well. So let's look at verses 7 and 8 to see the ignorant prayer of unbelievers. Look what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Now, this is pretty straightforward. And, and there's three things we should, we should understand here. First, he says, don't pray like the Gentiles. Remember, during this time, Israel was in covenant with God. The nations, or the Gentiles, were not. So for the most part, they were all pagans. There were some God-fearers, but for the most part, they were all pagans. Jesus' emphasis here isn't ethnic, it's religious. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about those who are believers and now those who are unbelievers. Today, he wouldn't say it like this because the majority of the world's believers are Gentiles. But back then, it was not so. So he's just telling us here, don't pray like the unbelievers. Second, he tells us not to babble like them. Now, this word babble is a unique word in Greek. It doesn't appear often in the ancient literature. It's the word batalageo. It's really fun to say. And it's one of those, uh, let me see if I can say this right. It's one of those um, onomatopoeic words. Yes. Um, and, and so those are words that sound like what they describe. So for example, babble is a word like that. It's just based on what it sounds like. If someone's like, blah, 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 we're like, stop your babbling, right? And back then, they didn't say ba or blah. They said ba, 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 ba. So like, knock off your batalagel, you know? And so that's where this word comes from. Now, more importantly, that might help you win Jeopardy one day, but more importantly, what does it mean to babble in this passage? Well, it, it means to repeat the same words over and over again. Pagans sometimes saw their prayers as incantations or spells. If they said the same powerful phrase again and again, then they thought it compels the gods to answer their prayers as they desire. Honestly, it's no different than the word of faith heretics today that think by naming it and claiming it, God now has to do what you speak with your mouth. That's paganism and blasphemy. 
Also related to this pagan uh, babbling uh, was flattery. They would heap all sorts of adjectives upon the gods that they're praying to as if that would somehow increase the likelihood of their prayer being answered with favor. So they'd be like, wise Zeus, powerful leader of Olympus, handsomest of the gods, swiftest to respond. And they just keep going. They just lay it on thick and then they repeat it over and over again. See, ultimately, they did not believe their gods were all-knowing or all-good. And so they repeated themselves a lot because they figured their gods forget. And so they have to keep reminding them. And then they'll finally remember. They also didn't believe their gods actually cared about them. So they had to convince their gods to intervene on their behalf. It was like, hey, you're going to get something out of this too, Hera, I promise you. you know? And so it was, a, it was an attempt at a quid pro quo. I'll do this for you if you do that for me. Clearly, these people did not know God. They had no idea of what the divine was actually like. Their false knowledge led to this ridiculous practice. And their motive was wrong too. The people wanted their selfish desires. And so they understood that prayer to them was nothing more than a long attempt to manipulate the divine into moving on behalf of mortals. That's all they were trying to do. So the repetitious incantations were designed to force the hands of the gods. The repeated flattery was designed to make them want to help. And the repeated prayer was meant to teach the gods exactly what you need because they don't know if you don't tell them, right? That is how they understood the divine. Well, in light of this, Jesus points out then the third thing we should notice from verse 7. He says these people, quote, imagine they'll be heard for their many words, end quote. I love the way the CSB puts that. This is all their imagination. It's not real. They imagine it's going to lead to this, but it won't. You know, the Old Testament paints a really good picture of this in the contest between the prophet Elijah and the priests of the pagan god Baal. And so notice how the pagans, hopefully you can see that, um, notice how the pagans try to get their god to listen. This is 1 Kings 18, 26 through 29. It says, so they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. Elijah had some jokes. Keep going. It says, they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. So they thought by dancing and cutting themselves and repeating themselves all day and raving until evening that somehow this would cause their prayers to be answered, that it would convince their God to answer. Jesus is telling us we are absolutely to reject that kind of praying. We do not pray like this. Don't insult God by trying to manipulate him. Don't think so little of him that you really think you have to repeat things to help God remember. Don't think you could sway God with flattery. And don't think you could force God's hand by so-called words of faith or power. These are all blasphemies. Now, sadly, in the history of Christianity, Jesus' teaching at times has been ignored. The Eastern Church, for example, promoted what was called the hay chasm prayer, where they repeated the same words over and over again in an obsessive manner. It was the words, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a fine prayer in and of itself, but they repeated it all day long. They were obsessive about it, and they thought it would increase their union with Christ and give them visions of the divine. Okay, that's just wrong. Now, most of you are probably more familiar with uh, the rosary and Catholicism. And if you know what the rosary is, how could someone read what Jesus said and think the rosary is okay? Okay, the rosary requires a person to repeat 56 Hail Marys, six Our Fathers, and six Glory Be Twos, you know. Uh, so 53 Hail Marys, six Our Fathers, and six Glory Be Two, you know, and they repeat it over and over again. And to help you with the repetition, they give you these beads. That way when you say one Hail Mary, you move the bead, and once you've moved 53 beads, or at least a bead 53 times, it helps you keep track of your repetition prayers, then they would say, all right, you've done your rosary, and God's going to hear you more. 
I don't know if you know this, but the practice of using beads to keep track of your repetitious prayers, that originated with pagan Hindus and Buddhists. In fact, they used the beads to keep track of their mantras because they believed if you repeated a mantra over and over again that it will bestow spiritual power upon you. That's paganism. Now, I'm not saying that the Catholics stole that idea from the pagans, like the mantra idea, but they stole the beads, okay? And then they started doing the exact same thing as if saying, Hail Mary, Mother of God, blah, 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 53 times now brings this extra grace to you. How is that different? That is paganism. Okay, if praying the prayer 53 times makes it more likely to happen, that is trying to manipulate God. Jesus said, don't repeat yourself over and over again. And just one more thing on that. It's bad enough to manipulatively repeat the same prayer to God over and over again. It's even worse when they give 53 repetitions to Mary and only six to God. That tells you a lot there. Anyway, Jesus... (laughs) Is not, I do want to say this though. Jesus is not against all repetition, just vain repetition. Because Jesus repeated the same prayer to God in the Garden of Gethsemane a couple times. He said, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass. It's not that he was trying to chant this to God. It was just a heartfelt prayer that, that he meant. And Jesus isn't against all long prayers. He prayed all night before uh, deciding who the 12 apostles would be. Okay, now it was a private prayer. And and Jesus also teaches us in a parable that we're to be persistent in prayer. So you're not wrong if you pray for the same thing every day. You know, Jesus' point, though, is that his followers must not pray meaningless, repetitive prayers that are designed to somehow sway God through repetition or length. If that's what you're doing, it's pagan. Listen, length and all that, that doesn't matter. Sometimes I don't have a lot to pray. Now, if I'm going to be real, all of us have a lot to pray, but sometimes we just don't realize it. There's not a lot on our heart. So if I don't have a lot on my heart, I'll pray for the things I normally pray for. But sometimes I got a lot going on, and I'll pray for well over an hour, and it only feels like 15 minutes. But I don't do that every day, because it's okay if you got that much to say to God. What's not okay is to think by repeating the same thing over and over again for a set amount of time, like an hour, that now God is going to look upon my prayer with favor. That shows no faith. If I have an hour's worth of stuff to pray for, I will pray for an hour. If I only got 10 to 20 minutes worth, I'm going to pray for 10 to 20 minutes. And that's okay. God wants your prayer to be sincere. Now, going back to those priests of Baal and their their battle to Elijah, remember, they prayed all day, saying the same things over and over again from morning to evening, nothing happened. When it was Elijah's turn, look how he prayed. This is very instructive. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 through 37. At the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, so he was keeping the three times of prayer as well, but anyhow, I digress. At the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord God, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That was it. That was his prayer. It wasn't all day long. How long did that take? Like 30 seconds? Um, And it was all focused on God. Even where he brought himself into it, let them know that you sent me so they'll turn back to you. It was all, all about God. Very straightforward. It was all that needed to be said, and God instantly rained fire down from heaven and and took up Elijah's offering so everybody could see that our Lord is God. So the lesson is, don't be like the pagans when you pray. That is not faithful praying. Instead, Jesus tells us in verse 8 what should be obvious to us because we have the right knowledge. He says this. He says, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Now, in the Greek, there's a therefore at the beginning of that, which lets you know this command is in light of what he just said about the pagans. He's saying, he's saying they think they imagine they're going to be heard because of this nonsense. Therefore, don't be like them. Why shouldn't you be like them? Look for the word because. Find the word because. What comes after the because gives you the why. So why should you not be like them? He says, because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. In other words, faithful prayer requires the right knowledge of God. And what do we know about God? He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all good or omnibenevolent, and he is in a covenant with us. In fact, God reveals himself as our father. 
We are his adopted children, and every good father loves giving good gifts to his little children. And we are his little children. So if you have that right knowledge, if you really believe that about God, then why would you ever think you have to repeat something a million times to get him to remember? Why would you think that, that you have to persuade him to look out for your best interest? Why would you think you have to manipulate him with flattery? Why would you think that you could bind the power of the Almighty Keep in mind, he's the Almighty. Why would you think you could bind the power of the Almighty with mere words from your puny mouth? It's just crazy. And so my point is the true knowledge of God held deeply in our hearts would cause us never to pray like the ignorant unbelievers. So this is a time to take inventory of your prayers. God wants us to pray, that's clear, but he doesn't want us to pray like hypocrites or unbelievers. So do you ever find yourself repeating yourself over and over again, thinking that if you do, God will be more inclined to answer? Well, stop. Stop if you're doing that. In fact, uh, King Solomon has some good advice for you in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2. He says, do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. In other words, God is God, you're not. Keep it as short as you can. He knows what you need. Okay. In a public prayer meeting, because we try to have them, we have them every Sunday morning before service starts. None of us need to hog all the time with our many words. Let's give everybody a chance to pray. Again, God knows what we need before we ask. We don't have to say it all. Okay, We could just say what's, what's most prominent on our mind, let it out, and then let others pray. Another thing to ask yourself is, do you think that you have to pray something a certain way? And, and if it wasn't answered the previous times, well, it's probably because I used the wrong words, right? I, I didn't say, not my will, but your will be done, or I didn't say in the name of the, to the Father, in the name of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You start, like, really overthinking it. Well, if that's what you're doing, then you're acting like your words make a difference. Do you think you have to pray something a certain number of times before God will see you're serious? That assumes he doesn't already know you're serious, do you think you have to make all sorts of promises, grand promises, to get God to listen to you? Well, that's quid pro quo, and it treats God as if he's begrudging when he gives us good things. Look, we know better. We know that God is not like that. So it's important that we remind ourselves of what we know about God and get our prayers to line up with what we know. Now, Somebody is bound to ask the question, and I, I was going to skip it, but I'm like, yeah, that means I'll get 20 people after church, so I'm going to get in front of this. Jesus said that God already knows ahead of time what we need before we ask. If God already knows what we need before we ask, then why pray? Somebody might be thinking that. And like a rabbi of old, I'm going to answer a foolish question with another question to show how foolish it is. If you ask me why pray if God already knows, I'm going to say, would you rather pray to a God that doesn't already know? And then I'd like to walk away. Now, of course, the person will be scratching their head. Well, no, I, I guess I went. But hey, wait a second. That didn't answer my question. All right, so they still, want, they still want an answer. And here's my answer, my first answer. I don't know, and I don't care. What I do know is that God commanded that we pray. And what I know is that the Father sees in secret, and he gives us a reward. And therefore, that should always be enough for me. But I also know that I am sometimes inquisitive, and so are other people, and they're going to say, yeah, I know, I agree, but, and then they're going to still whisper their question. I'm going to be like, I see you, you know, you're not listening, but anyhow, so here's the thing. Here's what I could tell you. <clears throat> God doesn't need your prayers. God doesn't need our prayers, but we need our prayers. I could tell you that. We need our prayers. Ask anyone who has walked with the Lord for decades and has had a strong prayer life, ask them how much their prayers have caused them to grow and trust God more. You're going to get the same answer over and over again. God, one reason he commands us to pray is for our sakes, not his sake. Perhaps, not perhaps, he knows we doubt. And so if we live a lifetime of asking and receiving, it makes us doubt him less. Okay, we grow from it. We learn from it. And of course, there's more than that. I think a good example comes from George Mueller, the famous British theologian uh, in, in, that ran England's greatest orphanage in the 1800s. <clears throat> he famously wrote down all of his prayers in a journal, and he wrote down whenever they were answered by God. And he didn't tell anybody his prayers. It was after he was dead, people looked through his journal. He recorded over 50,000 answered prayers in his lifetime. 50,000. 
I'm too lazy to write them down, but then I hear this, and I'm, man, I wish I would, because there'd probably be thousands, and I just keep forgetting them. He didn't want to forget. So, and, and again, he wouldn't tell people his prayers because he wanted to see God answer. So, for example, if his orphanage was running low on money, and he needed 20 British pounds to fund the next week, he would pray for it. And then usually... Like at the last minute, somebody would drop off a donation. Sometimes it would be the 20, sometimes it would be a little more, but it was always what they needed at least. One of the ones that I remember most from his life is that, again, this is an orphanage that had a lot of kids, and their kitchen ran out of milk one day. He didn't know where he was going to get the the, the milk for thousands of kids last minute in the morning. I mean, this is 1800s, right? There's no market you're just going to go to. There were no refrigerators. Um, So he just prayed. And it happened to be that a horse carriage carrying milk into the town broke a wheel right in front of the orphanage. And by the time they could fix the wheel, it all would have been spoiled anyway. So the guy just gave it to the kids, right? So, I mean, again, that's how God works. Now, the question you might be thinking is, would have God given the milk if Mueller didn't pray? I don't know. But here is what I do know. God ordained that they would both get the milk and that Mueller would pray first. That's what I know, okay? God ordains the ends and the means. The end was that the kids got the milk. The means was that his servant would pray. And through that prayer, his servant would grow. He would grow in faith and he'd grow in dependence. That was the first means. And then the second means was break a a horse carriage wheel. And the kids ended up getting their milk, okay? So God is sovereign over both the ends and the means, and he is determined what he's going to do, but sometimes he is also determined he's going to do it through your prayers, and that should be enough for us. If God decides to use our prayers as the means for his ends, then we need to stop questioning him, and we need to get busy praying. It's that simple. Now, as you pray, remember, faithful prayers, as I've been saying, require the right knowledge of God and the right reason for praying. So let me help us remember the right reasons and the wrong reasons. Here's a quick list. Right reasons. Pray to God because he's your father. Pray to God because he already knows what you need. Pray to God because you will grow closer to him and increase your faith. And pray to God because Jesus promises a reward. Those are the reasons to pray. Don't pray to God to be seen by people and don't try to manipulate him with gimmicks. Those are what not to do. If you walk out remembering all that, then that is great because that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Jesus has told us what not to do and why. Next time, and it won't be next week because we got Christmas Eve next week, so it'll be a Christmas Eve sermon, but the next time I preach, we will be in the next verse, and Jesus is going to show us how to pray with what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really like the model prayer, but I'll I'll get to that when we get there. But he's just shown us what not to do. Next time, he's in very good detail going to show us what right looks like. But even as we wait for that, we've got enough from what we've seen in our text today to still be praying right, to be praying right before God. And so so next time, we'll see the, the best example of a faithful prayer. But for now, let's take what we've learned and let's pray faithfully. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, you might be thinking, What right does Jesus or his followers have to say what right prayer is like? This whole time you've been talking about ignorant prayer of unbelievers. Well, who are you to say what right prayer is like? How dare we say that some prayers are ignorant or wrong? All opinions are right as long as the person is sincere. Well, let me tell you, it's real easy to answer your question. Praying to the universe is meaningless because the universe is not sentient. Praying to Hindu gods that do not exist is literally throwing your voice to the wind. Believing in one God, but then trying to manipulate him with your words is just foolish. Even more foolish is the idea that we could declare our own truth and somehow speak our truth to power. I'm going to speak my truth to God's power and he's going to respect my whims. He's infinite. I'm not, but he'll respect my whims because I'm speaking truth to power. Listen, that is crazy. That's crazy talk. Listen carefully. He is the creator. You're the creature. You are less than a tiny insect squeaking into the void in comparison to God. He is the creator. Apart from God, you can't breathe, you can't think, you can't eat, you can't do anything. If he withdrew all the breath of life from the world, we'd all die at once. The only reason that doesn't happen is he keeps sustaining it for us, okay? God decided, that God to whom we are all beholden, decided to give us his word so we would know what right is like. And then based on his word, we could say that, yeah, the stuff that contradicts this is wrong because this comes from God. 
God sent his son Jesus to teach us what right is like. And so such questions really are nonsense. We exist because of God. He doesn't exist because of us. We need God. He doesn't need us. He existed for all eternity before us. There is nothing we could actually give to him that isn't his. We can't add to him, yet he's willing to give us in abundance, and he adds to us every day. We are finite. God is infinite, which is a concept that our non-infinite minds can't even grasp. So rather than rebel against God because he doesn't just let us make up stuff about him, maybe instead we should listen to God, listen to what he says, and just obey it. Now, that's a, a, a bad heart problem that people have. Man, I hate God. I don't want to do what he says. Just stop. See who he is, see who you are, and obey him. But, but there's a bigger problem, a problem that undergirds this other problem I mentioned, and it's that we're sinners. We are all sinners. We, we've broken God's commands, and that is why we, we have these nasty thoughts and nasty hearts. And God is a holy God. He's an almighty judge, right? And a day is coming where he will judge all sin. And let me tell you something. You have probably committed trillions of sins, and a day is coming where, where all who are in their sins will stand before his great white throne of judgment and the books will be opened and every single sin will be read back. There will be no doubt in the person's mind by the end that one word describes their status forever and that is guilty. But there is good news. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. In, in other words, God is you got one God, but he's eternally three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son became a man 2,000 years ago. That's what Christmas is all about. He became a man, and he lived a perfect life, never sinning once. Why? So he could give the credit of that perfect score to those who believe in him. And then he takes our imperfect score, all of our sins, and puts it in his account, and he died on the cross paying the penalty. So our debt is now paid because of Jesus. He died. Three days later, he rose uh, on the third day in, in, in his resurrection body. He was glorified. He was indestructible. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will return as the judge. And here's how it works. If you turn away from your sins and trust Jesus and believe on him with all your heart, then all your sins are forgiven because he paid for it on the cross. And then God gives you the credit of his perfect score. And so now you have eternal life guaranteed. And then he gives you a new heart and he starts changing your desires and you start wanting to do the kinds of things our text is talking about, right? And so don't walk out of here still in your sins. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus because if you don't, then all that awaits is that, that throne of judgment. And we don't want that for you. Now we're gonna pray. And as I'm praying, you could pray your own prayer to God and uh, tell him you're turning from your sin and you receive Jesus as Lord. And if you mean it, you'll be saved and come and talk to us after and we'll gladly walk you through with, with what would come next. But with that, we're gonna pray and then we're gonna get ready for the Lord's Supper. So let's go to the Lord. God, we just...